Welcome to the Australia India Institute podcast, the home of cutting edge research and analysis on India from an Australian perspective. India is the world's fastest growing major economy, recording growth of 7.2% last year. But as with any developing economy, growth is not without pain. While tens of millions of Indians have entered the middle class in recent decades, inequality remains a significant problem. The World Bank estimates that one in five Indians live below the poverty line. But in 2014, Narendra Modi was elected on a platform that promised to tackle the issues of afflicting India's poorest. He promised a national campaign to improve sanitation, a committee to double farmers' income, a pledge to double government spending on education, and promised to create at least 10 million new jobs. So how inclusive has India's economic growth been, and where to next for this Asian powerhouse? To discuss these issues and more, we welcome Dr. Amitendu Palat, who is a Senior Research Fellow on Trade and Economic Policy at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Dr. Palat is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Trade and Investment, and previously worked as an economist for India's Ministry of Finance and Ministry of Industry. Dr. Pallet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I guess we can start off by saying that India is now uh, in the grips of an electoral campaign uh, with a general election scheduled for April. Uh, how would you rate Prime Minister Modi's performance and handling of the economy over the past four and a half years uh, with reference to some of those issues that I might have foreshadowed? I would say uh, on the whole, it's been a mixed bag in the sense that uh, when Mr. Modi came in, and that was uh, 2014 May, uh, the Indian economy was uh, not looking in very great shape and uh, there were issues surrounding the economy in terms of uh, the price levels, the investment flows into the economy, the general perception about the economy in the minds of the overall global investors. So I think what uh, Mr. Modi was successful in doing, and in fact, uh, he also did emphasize that he would try to uh, take the country ahead from what was being described at that point in time by policy paralysis. A large number of uh, policies were in the pipeline, but none of them were actually getting implemented due to difficulties in obtaining political consensus and taking all stakeholders on board. So I think to that extent, what has happened, and that's kind of visible in the numbers that we get to see on the Indian economy, uh, by and large, uh, a growth rate of around 7%. Uh, I think there's a little confusion, uh, in fact, none at all over the fact that India remains the fastest growing among the major economies of the world, uh, even more than China. Uh, India also has uh, been in a position to kind of keep the uh, prices under control. And this is uh, notwithstanding the fact that there have been uh, headwinds coming up from the global crude oil prices market. Uh, though there have been some uh, ramifications of that on the domestic uh, commodity purchase scenarios, particularly when India uh, buys petroleum, uh, refined petroleum products, and there are some reflections on that in the burgeoning current account deficit. But I think on the whole, growth and moderation in prices uh, were two of the major achievements uh, for this government, and it was uh, to an extent helped by the fact that the global oil prices were generally heading south. And also, I think one needs to take note of the fact that Mr. Modi's image uh, has been appealing to the investors. He has had the image of being a doer. He has been proactive in improving India's perception as a good place for doing business. That has been reflected in the successive improvements India has achieved in the ease of doing business. So 
Altogether, I think uh, on the investment front as well, India managed to do reasonably well. But having said that, there are areas where I think uh, serious concerns continue to remain. And essentially, I would flag three areas. Uh, the first of these is agriculture. And the concern in agriculture amounts to the fact that notwithstanding a variety of efforts that have been taken by the government, uh, not just at the central level, but also at the federal level, uh, farmers are not getting the prices uh, for their crops that they are expecting, as a result of which their incomes are stagnating. The second problem uh, that I would flag is essentially with respect to a uh, condition which, which has been with the Indian economy for some time. It's referred to as jobless growth, uh, which is essentially describing a condition where India is growing at a good rate of growth, a healthy 7%, close to that, maybe sometimes even above that. But that growth, and in fact, you alluded to this in the beginning of the need for India creating uh, millions of jobs, uh, that growth is actually not producing jobs. So that remains a source of economic, social and political tension. And finally, I think over the last couple of years, uh, Mr. Modi's economic policies have shown a tendency to divert from a fiscal discipline to more of fiscal profligacy. Uh, maybe with an eye on the elections, maybe with an eye on uh, addressing uh, needs of the larger sections of the electorate, uh, but without paying too much heed to the fact as to whether these could be sustainable in the long term. So the fiscal deficit has not been checked over the last couple of budgets, and that remains a source of concern. Yes, and indeed, the the budget, the the interim budget, was released last Friday, um, and coming just before an election, this is a sensitive issue. Um, were there any surprises in that budget, and and do you think that it contained measures that might address some of the concerns of, of some of the rural voters who seem to be deserting uh, Mr Modi and his BJP, especially in state elections late last year? You know, to me, the surprising fact of this budget was, as you mentioned, it's an interim budget, and an interim budget is essentially meant to be a budget till a new house is elected and a formal full budget for the financial year is actually placed. And normally, interim budgets do tend to avoid uh, what are really long-term announcements in terms of economic policies. But what I sense is that in that respect, this budget has been much more than an interim budget. In fact, it has taken steps. And in terms of its scope, it has probably done even more than what a normal full-term budget does. So if you look at the uh, measures that have come in here, there's been a step up in the government's support to several sectors of the economy, notably first the agricultural sector. We mentioned about farmers' distress. There was tremendous pressure on the Modi government to address the concerns of the farmers. Uh, the Congress has been uh, working very hard in this respect uh, to drive home a point that the Modi government has been unattentive towards the distress of the farmers. So the government had to announce a package that was expected, and what it did was announced a direct income support for about 120 million small and marginal farmers. Uh, in addition to that, it stepped up the outlays for the ongoing Rural Employment Guarantee Program. It also announced a scheme uh, for pension benefits for the unorganized sector workers. So while all this meant an increase in expenditure, on the other side, it decided to give up revenues by allowing uh, much higher levels of absolute tax exemption for the salaried earners. So I think it means 
that the budget now uh, gets into a domain where expenditures are definite, committed, uh, very well visible, but revenues might be very difficult to mobilize mm. for matching up to this high level of expenditure. And that's going to be a serious challenge. Was it uh, an economically rational decision? Or was it a decision taken, kept entirely in mind just the political benefits mm. uh, that might flow out of the announcement of these measures, which are, uh, you know, in, in, in certain cynical ways also describable as simply SOPs or handouts mm. uh, for certain sections uh, that are important constituencies like farmers, like the middle class and mm. the unorganized workers. It's only been a few days since this has been released, but have we seen any of these? Has there been a, a positive um, reaction by, by the targeted uh, audience of, of this budget? You know, uh, at the end of the day, I think it's important to uh, also note that no political party is actually going to oppose these measures because uh, these are measures, however short-term, economically difficult to sustain that they might be, they do have a political appeal in the sense that uh, the, these are benefits given to people and people love to get benefits. Uh, whether they are economically sustainable or not is, is, is a question that doesn't bother the common man in that sense. So essentially it's up to the political parties in that case to ensure and be more responsible that you know uh, politics doesn't necessarily become terrible economics. Mm. But I think this is a view which has been compromised in the light of the current circumstances. There are already decisions uh, made in terms of early release and installment periods coming out on the direct income support scheme uh, that Mr. Modi's uh, government has announced for the farmers. So I think the intention is that before the code of conduct for elections kick in and which is going to be pretty soon because Indian elections are expected to take place anytime during April and May. And uh, once those dates are announced, uh, it's not possible for the governments, uh, the central government in particular, to announce any measures, any policy measures, which could be seen as directly influencing uh, the electoral outcomes. So I think the government is very keen that uh, as fast as possible, uh, they should try to ensure that the benefits of what has been announced are at least uh, seen to be in the process and in the pipeline of reaching the targeted beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. And what about the opposition? What has the opposition have to say about this? It's uh, perhaps not politically able to, to rebut this, this, um, this budget, but what other economic policies has the opposition, the Indian National Congress, put out? Uh, frankly, none. There are legislations and policies which... Political parties usually don't take the risk of criticizing when they know that however much they might create difficulties in the ways of industry, business and economic activity generation in general, they do make sense from a political perspective, at least from a very short ad hoc uh, time perspective. And uh, the time for elections is pretty close. The Congress has been uh, very active in pushing the fact that it is with the farmers, it will be with the farmers. The opposition, in fact, has gone uh, to the extent of suggesting that it's not just farmers, but it's important to ensure that Indians, no Indian actually goes hungry, stays poor. And to that extent, it's proposed the uh, consideration of a minimum income 
uh, guarantee for all Indians, uh, which essentially means that, uh, you know, in one way, probably it, it made the Modi government proactive in announcing something in the budget, which they could have countered with, and so far as the opposition statements were concerned on income and farmer support. And on the other hand, this was something the opposition couldn't have criticized because they have been talking about similar things. So I don't expect any criticism except for maybe purely token symbolic criticism in terms of, you know, uh, and, and, and that's what some political parties have indeed pointed out, that the amount of money allotted to the direct income support scheme for farmers is too paltry. A very small amount of money. But then uh, they also have not been able to provide any answer to the fact as to how the government could have mobilized more resources and whether there are such options going ahead. Mm. And so that, that universal basic income or that yeah. minimum basic income for um, India's poor, how would that work? I mean, is it sustainable for, for starters? And, and how would it be funded? Or would the amounts be? Um, would it be beneficial to these people? I think the, uh, the core of this idea comes from the fact that India is a country uh, which is uh, well on its way to becoming the most populous country in the world. And it's also a country which has the largest number of youth living in it. And this demographic character means that uh, India is rapidly adding new entrants to its workforce. And most of the new entrants are uh, reasonably educated. They may not be uh, very well technically qualified in all respects in terms of global standards, but they are reasonably well educated in terms of being uh, at least, you know, graduate degree holders or diploma holders and so on and so But the challenge for the government is to provide them jobs and to ensure that uh, India remains an economy uh, which is not just a high-growth economy, but that high-growth also translates into more and more jobs. Now, that's been a phenomenal challenge, and I think that challenge is very difficult to address. Uh, and I, I, I don't think it's a question of the government not being sincere enough or anything like that. I think for any government at this point in time, not just in India, but even across the world, it's very difficult to... Uh, you know, uh, claim that it has been successful in creating jobs because the character of production has changed, character of enterprises have changed. Uh, there's much more of digitalization, replacing human functions and so on and so forth. But this is not an answer that one can give to the common man, the people on the roads and the people who are entering the workforce because they are frustrated. Their aspirations are high. And if the frustration continues, it can, it can create a serious social problem in a, a fragile uh, country like India. So I think to that extent, uh, the popular narrative in search of solutions has moved to a position where an universal basic income has been considered. And it's been a debate which has been going on for the last three years. There have been some propositions made as to what could be the structure of a UBI. Uh, the Indian state of Sikkim has uh, announced a universal basic income scheme very recently. Uh, this is uh, a monthly income which will be paid to uh, the residents of the state. Uh, I think to me the important point about a universal basic income scheme is, I think, how does that scheme uh, get sponsored? Uh, because let me again come back to the question that this is something which the state has to provide. The state takes guarantee. The state takes full responsibility. But if this is a responsibility that the state takes... Uh, for for 
endowing the citizens with and the residents with. It must be sure of ways and means of mobilizing the revenue for supporting this in the long term. And let's also keep in mind the fact that an income remains a meaningless income unless and until it increases in real terms. So the inflation has to be factored in. And these are serious challenges. Mm. Uh, I suppose what India would essentially be looking to have uh, in terms of uh, a UBI package is probably not a universal UBI, if I can describe it that way, but maybe a quasi-UBI, which is essentially addressing the more vulnerable sections of the society, uh, which could be with the farmers, which could be uh, with the people below the poverty line, or, or some other more disadvantaged categories of the population to begin with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I, I always very firmly believe that uh, the UBI uh, much is, is good in principle. Uh, it not just has to encounter the public finance challenge, it must also not send the signal uh, to Indians that, uh, you know, the state has become the last word of all security, mm. at least economic security for individuals and households. The state must continue to ensure that markets and institutions function in a proper manner, so much so that there are a very large number of creative, active, enterprising Indians and enterprises, and they get a chance to function contribute not just to their own individual and national economy, but also to the global economy. And is there a, I've seen a discussion around the UBI and this concept that it might actually um, help to reduce corruption or leakages along the, along the pathway to delivering services to these people who require yeah. it, because, yeah. you know, it often gets siphoned off at some point. Is that, is that a, a genuine um, point about the UBI? I think, yes, definitely, because, uh, you know, it, it, it again comes back to the question of how the UBI is being administered. But I think this br uh, takes one back to the uh, biometric uh, system that India has put in place in terms of there being a unique identity number for each resident, mm -hmm. which is referred to as the Aadhaar number. So which essentially means that uh, all services which are uh, being paid out from the central or state exchequer uh, directly to the beneficiaries uh, get enabled through this particular unique identity and the entire objective is, of that is to prevent all possible leakages from this transfer and ensure that the intended beneficiary of the services and the support does in fact uh, remain the full and complete beneficiary of that support and there, there's no rent seeker who pops up in between. And I suppose the UBI must be administered in that kind of a fashion because unless it is done in that kind of a way, I'm afraid there's going to be enormous leakages. And I guess if we take it back to the, the political and the political pledges made in 2014 by, yeah. by Narendra Modi, 10 million new jobs, you know, doubling farmers' income, doubling government spending on, on education. Out of those three pledges, have any of them been satisfied? Well, I, I suppose if they had been satisfied, you wouldn't have asked me this question. <laughs> but uh, what I assume is that, you know, uh, by, by their very nature, these were very ambitious commitments. And India is a big country, large number of people, very complex uh, in every sense. 
complex not just in terms of its uh, social, cultural, political character, but also complex in terms of the difference in degree and the depth of its institutions and policy-making spaces and domains. I think uh, the, the, the issue involved in this regard is that uh, some people would probably start raising the questions that, look, uh, political parties are known for making tall claims. Leaders are known for making uh, promises, which often they can't deliver on. Uh, but if there are promises which have been made, and if people are of the view that the leaderships have tried sincerely uh, to maintain these promises, they might not have been as successful as they wanted to be, but nonetheless, they have been serious in their commitment, in their efforts. Then I think there will be a sympathetic attitude towards the government and the leaders who have made these promises. But if it is to the contrary, if more people think that these promises remained just what they were and they were essentially vacuous commitments, and if that produces a sense of anger and disenchantment among the larger section of the people, then again, that is going to get reflected in the electoral verdict. So I think eventually it comes down to a question of perceptions. How people view these perceptions from their own individual perspectives and how individuals feel that they themselves have either been influenced or not influenced by these claims and commitments. So in that respect, I believe that certain communities as a whole, uh, one always uh, runs the risk of generalizing. But I think without generalizing, probably one can say uh, that, you know, the, the, the youth uh, will have a very important role to play in terms of how they have visualized uh, Mr. Modi and his commitments and the performance of his government. The farmers will have an important role to play because uh, farmers' income and their fluctuations and the problems arising out of uh, such fluctuations is not a local or a regional feature to a large extent. It cuts across farmers across the country. Uh, there's also, let's say, for example, issues with related to the minority communities, the lower castes in India, uh, whether they feel economically empowered enough as a result of this government and what it has done. Uh, there's also uh, the, the gender issue, the women, whether the women think that they have achieved sufficient social and economic empowerment in a large number of respects. So I think when the general elections come and the commitments are taken in the perspective of the general elections, uh, there's going to be a substantial assessment and re-evaluation because, uh, well, this is the time. Five years is not maybe enough time for making India a different country. But five years is also good enough time uh, for people to realize whether a serious start and an honest effort has been made or not. And just finally, if we go back to inclusive growth and, and jobs and jobs being key, um, I think I heard you quote uh, earlier in a different session that um, the Indian government needs to create a million new jobs a month to, to satisfy the, the, um, the current of young, young people coming up and entering the workforce. What would be one policy recommendation um, if you were working for either of the political parties or the government, one policy recommendation uh, to, to create jobs? Look, I think it's not a policy that is required at this stage. I think what is required is from across the political spectrum and leaders a frank submission that, look, it's, it's 
not entirely up to us and our abilities to produce jobs. We are trying hard. But for a variety of reasons, we probably won't be able to produce as many jobs as the country requires. But nonetheless, we are trying hard. We are exploring options. We are experimenting. But please don't expect blanket numbers from us. And we don't want the aspirations to rise to a level where this cannot be fulfilled. I think what the political parties in India need to do is a frank admission of the fact that we recognize the problems, but we also accept at the same time that we don't have any magic wands. We'll try to deliver our best under the circumstances. We will take you on board while doing so. We'll try to pay heed to your uh, difficulties as much as possible. But we don't promise overnight, yearly or five yearly transformations in your prospects as individuals or in the standard of living that you have. I think the country is looking for honesty and honest submission rather than radical path-breaking economic policies, tall promises and, you know, uh, jazzy makeups. <laughs> Dr. Amatendu Palad, thank you so much for joining the Australia Indian My Institute. pleasure, Simon. Thank you so much. My pleasure.